Before we begin, a warning to listeners. This episode of Art Intervention deals with depictions of violence and mentions aspect of mental health that include addiction and depression and may not be suitable for everyone. Listener discretion is advised. People are not any one thing. They are not all good or all bad. They're not always their profession or their role in a family. They're not always mothers, fathers, artists, teachers, lawyers. They get to be many things. Frida Kahlo demonstrated this in the way that she lived her life. She truly encapsulated that you cannot judge someone for how they appear and that you can wear many different faces, so to speak. It is absolutely heartbreaking to see individuals, Frida Kahlo among them, boiled down to a single symbol or flat identity. We are more than just our appearance, our job, or our relationships. In this episode, we're going to talk about who Frida was on a few different levels, but to be clear, I didn't know her. I've only ever read about her and read the letters that she wrote, watched interviews with people who have made a career researching her life and her artwork, but that is not the same as knowing her in life. Even then, it is impossible to know who she really was, but we can at least shed some light into the complex and amazing person that she appeared to be. If you've not yet listened to the first episode in this little series entitled Body, I encourage you to pause here, go back and listen to this episode, and then rejoin us. In Body, we looked at the life of Callow and the many horrific injuries and illnesses that impacted her throughout her life, and how it was that she turned much of her frustration and pain into art, why so many of her themes centered around self-portraits and her physical health, and her strength and representation of differently abled individuals, highlighting in some ways that people of disabilities, illnesses, differences, are still people capable of amazing things. Callow represented and continues to represent the importance of making visible differently abled people, especially in the world of visual and performing arts. We looked at some contemporary applications of this as well. It's worth a listen because it gives some context into the life that Callow was living. The types of hardships that Callow endured over the course of her life were horrific. She experienced great highs and lows, struggled with her mental health just as much as her physical, and often sought out ways of distracting herself from the pain that was so constant in her life. But there was so much more to Callow than just her physical pain and tribulations. There was more to her mind than her depression, or even her artistic brilliance. People are not any one thing. All of us are multifaceted individuals who are capable of a wide and shocking array of actions, emotions, and thoughts. Callow is well known and regarded for her art, but she was not just an artist. She was many things, a daughter, a wife, a friend, and a revolutionary. Welcome to Art Intervention. This is part two of a series on the art and life of the great artist, Frida Kahlo. It was like any other day for a man exiled from his home country and on the run, fleeing from assassination attempt after assassination attempt. He, Leon Trotsky, sat in a beautiful courtyard in his Mexican home, surrounded by bodyguards. These men were hard at work, preparing for future assassination attempts by further barricading courtyard walls and setting up a complex alarm system. Trotsky, meanwhile, welcomed a familiar friend into his home, 
which had transformed in these past months from a suburban comfort to a near impenetrable fortress. Now, my pronunciation of last names is not great. If you know how to say the names properly, please let me know. I'm happy to re-record so that these last names are pronounced in their proper format. But for now, I'll do the best that I can. Frank Jackson walked right past the busy guards and up to his dear friend for a visit, as he had so many other times. But this time, something was slightly amiss. Along with an article that Jackson had brought with him in hopes to share with Trotsky, he had also brought a raincoat. Odd, for the weather was beautiful, no rain in sight. When Trotsky led Jackson into the house for a better look at the article, Jackson pulled out a pickaxe from beneath the raincoat and swung at Trotsky. The pickaxe hit its mark and was buried deep into Trotsky's skull. Despite this great injury, the two men began to fight, raising the alarm to the nearby guards. The bodyguards rushed in to aid Trotsky and found hidden within Jackson's raincoat further weapons, a dagger and an automatic pistol. Though talking and lucid, Trotsky was horrendously injured and was quickly taken to hospital. There, he underwent emergency surgery, and though appearing to be doing well, he took a grave turn the next day. On August 21, 1930, Leon Trotsky, one of the architects of the Russian Revolution, slipped into a coma and died. The story of Trotsky's brutal assassination is one that is deeply complex and tangled up with so many other bloody deaths, fights, and betrayals. Frank Jackson was severely beaten in the course of his attack on Trotsky and was taken to the same hospital to be cared for. His life was spared by Trotsky, who called out to the guards before being taken away that they must not kill him, for they needed him to talk. Jackson had been the boyfriend of an American confidant of Trotsky's, a woman named Sylvia Agaloff. And here is when we begin to uncover the tip of the complex iceberg. When he was seen to at the hospital, Jackson produced a confession letter that named him to be a disgruntled Belgian follower of Trotsky's named Jacques Monard. Monard had fallen out with Trotsky and an apparent slight against Monard's relationship with Agaloff. The letter accused Trotsky of not blessing a proposed marriage between the two, and that Trotsky was forcing Renard into an assassination plot against Stalin. That's Joseph Stalin, the leader, or dictator, of the Soviet Union who seized power upon the death of Vladimir Lenin. This was all confirmed later by a devastated Agalov. She was shocked at the attack on Trotsky, but unknown to her, this story was also not true. It was later uncovered that her whole relationship with Menard had been a detailed ploy to set up the perfect scenario by which to assassinate Trotsky. The assassin was actually named Ramon McCarter. McCarter was a Spanish communist who had been recruited by the Soviet intelligence agency during the Spanish Civil War. He was instructed to pose as a Belgian socialite in order to meet and seduce Agaloff at a staged chance encounter in Paris, France in 1938. He then followed Agaloff back to Brooklyn in America, using a passport of a Canadian man, Frank Jackson, who had been killed during the Spanish Civil War. It was then only a small matter of convincing Agaloff to move from Brooklyn to Mexico City to be close to Trotsky so that he, Ramon Ricotter, could eventually gain access to the Trotsky compound 
while gaining the trust of the guards and Trotsky himself. From there, well, we know the rest. Such a detailed, conniving, and deceitful plan. But you might be wondering, how does this have anything to do with Kahlo? Why are we talking about the murder of a Russian man when we should be talking about the complex Mexican painter? Well, it is in part due to her on-again, off-again partner, the artist Diego Rivera. Rivera was a member of the Mexican Communist Party and used his art to criticize capitalism. In 1927, he traveled to the Soviet Union as a part of a delegation of Mexican Communist Party officials, an act that only further cemented his reputation as a political radical and one to be watched. Kahlo was also a staunch communist, and the two were involved in many protests and actions that promoted Marxism and communist ideals. Despite Rivera's political views, American political figures and leaders of industry loved his work and often sought him out to create artwork for them. This included people like Edsel Ford, who was the CEO of Ford Motors in the 1930s, perhaps the antithesis of communism, but hey, good art is good art, and a job is a job. But Rivera was a bit of a sneak. He was constantly trying to push boundaries in what he could get away with. He was very charismatic, and his charisma could often get him into and out of a lot of wild situations. For example, he caught the attention of Nelson Rockefeller, the son of John D. Rockefeller, who was, to put it mildly, a big deal. You might have heard of Rockefeller Center in New York City. This was named after John D. Rockefeller. So you could say that Nelson Rockefeller came from a pretty intense family. Rivera was commissioned to create a mural at Rockefeller Center, and being a hardcore communist and perpetual line tower, Rivera included a likeness of Lenin in his mural. This did not go over well with Nelson Rockefeller, who felt that it was inappropriate. Rivera never got to finish this mural in Rockefeller Center. He instead returned to Mexico with Kahlo. The unfinished mural was eventually painted over. Keep in mind that this all happened only 20 years or so before the United States began a bit of a witch hunt when it came to communists in America. We aren't going to go into anti-communist sentiment or McCarthyism right now, but it is worth reading about to understand why so many people were uncomfortable with Rivera's artwork and why communism continues to be controversial in North America, even to this day. But let's jump back. Rivera and Kahlo had been consistent supporters of Marxism, which is a form of communism, for a long time. Both were also very influenced by the Mexican Revolution, which began in 1910 and lasted until about 1917 to 1920. Kahlo was only a small child when the revolution began, but her family was greatly impacted by the conflict. Her parents suffered a great deal financially. They had to sell many of their possessions and rent out spare rooms in their house just to get by. When Kahlo was a bit older, she witnessed fights associated with the revolution. But for Kahlo, the biggest influence came after the revolution, where there was a return to Mexican roots. It is said that this was the start of the nationalist renaissance, where the cultural identity of traditional Mexican ways of life were promoted and celebrated. The 1920s saw artists, writers, musicians, and even more, being supported by the government and given free reign to tell the story of Mexico. Enter Diego Rivera, who was one of the artists who created large-scale murals celebrating Mexican culture. 
his art was the reason that Callow met him in the first place. She was looking for advice on her own art practice and came to learn and gather advice from this artist who was 20 years her senior. They met, found they had a great deal in common, and fell in love. Around the same time frame, the Russian Revolution was occurring, 1912 until 1923. Callow and Rivera apparently followed the Russian Revolution very closely as they agreed with the plight of the people rising up against an ancient empire and class structure. The history of this time is incredibly violent and complicated. It is estimated that 1.5 million people died as a direct result of the Mexican Revolution. In researching this episode, I found a range of estimates, but the most credible one that I could find stated that 10 million people died as a result of the Russian Revolution. Like I said, horrific. But Rivero and Callow believed that this shift in political ideology was important to support the needs of the working common people. This close contact and awareness of the Russian Revolution is one of the ways that the two became aware of Leon Trotsky, who was the number two of the whole Russian Revolution, only coming second to Vladimir Lenin, remember? The guy who Rivera tried to sneak into his painting in New York? After the revolution in Russia ended, Lenin soon fell ill and died. This meant that the position of power was open, something that was coveted by Joseph Stalin. Stalin quickly outmaneuvered Trotsky, and after a series of intricate and unfortunate events, Trotsky was kicked out of his political party and exiled from Russia. This is where Rivera comes in, and unknowingly sets into motion events that would lead to Trotsky's assassination. Rivera used his connections within the Mexican government to plead Trotsky's case. He was a brother in arms, a soul who understood the plight that the Mexican people had just endured. How could they not open their doors to this man who was in need of refuge? The government agreed, and Trotsky and his wife were given political asylum in Mexico. The Trotskys were given access to Rivera and Callo's second home, Casa Azul. It was here that Callow and Trotsky met and fell for each other. The two began a passionate love affair. They communicated in English so that they might not catch the attention of Trotsky's wife. But this didn't stop them from blatantly flirting with each other in front of guests or sneaking love notes to each other, hidden away in books. Eventually, and not surprisingly, the two were found out by Trotsky's wife, and she gave him an ultimatum to choose who he wanted to be with. His wife, who had stood beside him throughout the revolution and as he was exiled from Russia, or his lover, who had given them safe harbor when things were dark. Trotsky chose his wife and cut off the affair with Callow, though all accounts say that the two remained distant but good friends. Much of the art that Callow created was steeped in layers. She dealt with her own health and her subsequent confinement, her despair towards Diego, her love of nature, her passion for anatomy, and her political leanings. Something that often raised eyebrows of her peers, but nothing that put her at risk of physical harm, like that of Trotsky. But that isn't the case for all artists. Expressing oneself is a part of being human. To be deprived of a voice is to be told you are not a participant in society. Ultimately, it is a denial of humanity. These are the words that greet visitors to the webpage of the artist and activist, 
Ai Weiwei. Ai is a multifaceted artist creating sculptures, site-specific installations, documentaries, books, and so much more. He transcends medium to express his thoughts and send a message. In addition to his artwork, he is perhaps more well-known internationally for his political and social activism. Born August 28th of 1957, I grew up in the northwest part of China. His father had been exiled due to the anti-rightist movement. A very surface-level explanation of the anti-rightist movement is that from 1956 to 1957, Chairman Mao Zedong began what was called the Hundred Flowers Movement, which was a campaign that encouraged the influential academics of China to participate in developing government policy and decision-making. But this quickly spiraled out of control as people began to offer feedback that ranged from helpful to highly critical, some even calling for the Communist Party to step down from power. Other people were incredibly critical, even threatening, of the chairman himself. So in 1957, the anti-rightist movement or campaign began. Those vocal individuals who were once asked to share their thoughts were now rounded up and punished for their criticisms of the governing party. After Chairman Mao passed away, Ai Weiwei returned with his family to Beijing in the 1970s where he began school, studying at the Beijing Film Academy before leaving to travel and study abroad. Things for Ai began to take a very heated turn in 2008. On May 12th of that year, there was a massive earthquake in China's Sichuan province. Approximately 90,000 people were killed. Of these victims, over 5,000 were children. These children were killed when their schools collapsed on them. Due to what I claimed to be a lack of any real information for the government on the exact numbers of deaths, nor any kind of government accountability or transparency, I launched an investigation into the disaster which led to claims of government corruption and cover-ups. In honor of the event, I created a sculpture of a large serpent using only backpacks to create this massive beast. This sculpture has since traveled the world, being exhibited in many prominent galleries. In 2009, I claimed to have been beaten by police. Later, he was diagnosed with severe internal injuries while in Munich, Germany. In 2010, he was placed under house arrest back home in China. In 2011, he was arrested for alleged economic crimes and was detained for 81 days without any charge. In 2015, I was allowed to leave China. He moved to Berlin, Germany and stayed until 2019, whereupon he left and moved to Cambridge in the United Kingdom. Despite his past and continued strained relationship with the Chinese government, he remains, to this day, a vocal critic of political systems. In 2019, Artnet News wrote an article wherein they discuss an open letter written by I. The letter called on the United States and Canada to step up and do more to confront the Chinese government on topics that included human rights violations, environmental harm, and corruption. Quote, The West has pretended to not notice, or more insidiously, has been a willing partner. End quote. He has also commented on the country that gave him refuge, after fleeing China. He called Germany intolerant, bigoted, and authoritarian. I has demonstrated consistently that he will call on governments and individuals when he sees injustice, and he will continue to use any artistic means possible to highlight inequality, abuse, and inaction.
People aren't any one thing. They can be horrible, dangerous, creative, and talented. They can be leaders of revolutions while being parents, partners, and lovers. They can be artists, poets, and activists. They can suffer deeply from depression, be imprisoned one way or another, beaten, exiled, all the while believing that they can exact positive change in the world, even if it means putting their lives at risk. It is hard to discuss any kind of revolution, political conflict, or social activism without going deep into the history of a nation, of a region, or world history in general. Things don't just happen because. There is always a reason, and that reason is usually tied back to something that happened decades, if not hundreds of years ago. So this is a podcast dedicated to the arts mostly, but it is also a podcast about history and people. I feel like I have to do a bit of a disclaimer here because we are just barely touching on topics like the Russian Revolution, the Mexican Revolution, and the impacts of the Cultural Revolution in China. These conflicts, these actions killed millions upon millions of people. They changed the course of history, but they are not the main focus of the podcast today. But without these political and historic events, Frida Kahlo would never have been a part of the Mexican Communist Party, never would have met Leon Trotsky, and we would not have her legacy of activism through her artwork. Ai Weiwei would never have grown up in a rural part of China or come to develop a life of artistic activism. I urge you, to make use of the wealth of knowledge you have available, be it credible internet sources or books from your local library. Go read more about historic events like the Cultural Revolution, the Russian and Mexican revolutions, because they are all convoluted, fascinating, and horribly devastating. If you liked this episode, there is more content for you to connect with. Check out my webpage for show notes, links to resources about topics discussed today, and my own artwork. This week, you can see a link to a document that has incredible pictures of Callow and Rivera in Detroit working on the mural commissioned by Ford. You can follow the show on Instagram or Twitter at Art Intervention. There, you can see original artwork made for episodes, more facts about episode content, and so much more. And if you like the show, please subscribe, give it a rating, or tell a friend. Remember friends, sharing is caring. Art Intervention is researched, written, recorded, and edited by me, Alexandra Hunt. You can find Art Intervention on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Anchor, or wherever you discover your favorite podcasts. This podcast is created on the traditional territories of Treaty 7 land in southern Alberta, Canada. Thanks so much for listening.